Happy Thanksgiving week, Meister fans. I hope all of you are going to have an opportunity to see your family and your loved ones and catch up with old friends. I am doing exactly that this week, and I'm going to be releasing a couple of repeat episodes today and on Thanksgiving Day Thursday. Hopefully both of them will evoke a sensation of gratitude and thankfulness on your part and on my part, too. Before we throw it back to episode number 68 with the blind hiker Trevor Thomas, I have a fun request from the Meister fans. Typically in our family, we make the the Thanksgiving dinner together. And although we do, you know, we work together, each person has their own signature dish. I've I've manned the potatoes, the mashed potatoes that is for the past maybe five to 10 years. And I love doing different variations. I'll do, you know, sometimes I'll throw in some white pepper, I think I did one year, or some buttermilk, buttermilk mashed potatoes. That was good. Sometimes I'll mix the Parmesan cheese in with the mashed potatoes. What else have I done? Left the skins on, take the skins off. On a scale of one to 10, with one being boring mashed potatoes and 10 being exciting mashed potatoes, I probably come in at around five each year. This year, I'm looking to take it to maybe an eight or a nine. And that's where you come in, Meister fans. I want your weird Thanksgiving recipes. I want ways to jazz up not only our mashed potatoes, but any classic Thanksgiving meal. And naturally, what came to my mind was to Google weird Thanksgiving meals. And just to give you an example, eight weird twists on classic Thanksgiving meals by Bon Appetit. The first option is a Thanksgiving sushi roll with a chunk of turkey, stuffing, cranberry sauce, cream cheese, some chives, all wrapped up in some seaweed and some sticky rice. It looks really weird, but I'm sure it tastes fine. Meister fans, I want to hear your weird Thanksgiving meals. Send us a note either through Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or through email or through our contact page on our website, whatever. Any of these means will work. Not only will you be featured on our social media pages, we will feature your Thanksgiving meal at our dinner table on Thanksgiving. So send in the recipes. I would love to see them. All right, now time for our throwback episode this week. We are going to episode number 68 with the blind hiker Trevor Thomas. This is an unbelievable story. I still can't get over it. Trevor is a mountain meister in every sense of the word. Episode number 68 starts now. Who are the mountain meisters? Committing to the goal and galvanizing you and your team behind that one single focus. Being at peace with that fear and being okay with it. You gain a real appreciation for your life and for what you have. Learn about their extreme lives on rock, snow, and ice with your host, Ben Shank. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Mountain Meister. This is Ben. Today on the show, we have Trevor Thomas, who is also known as Zero Zero. And Trevor has hiked some of the most legendary and difficult treks in the U.S., including an unassisted solo end-to-end through hike of the Appalachian Trail, which is 2,175 miles, and that was in 2008, and in 2009, he completed the 2,654-mile Pacific Crest Trail. Now, Meister fans, here's the kicker. Trevor is blind, 
In 2005, Trevor became blind in only a few months, and after a period of mourning, he set out to regain his skills he needed to function in society, which I say, Trevor, you are doing a pretty good job of that. Welcome to Mountain Meister. Thanks for having me. Your story is absolutely incredible, and I think everyone listening to the show is going to love this one. So let's first rewind back to 2005 and learn a little bit about when your vision restrictions start to come. Do you remember kind of the day where you're like, mm, something's wrong? Pretty much I went to I went to a place called Vision Works thinking I needed contacts or glasses or something. And she took a look in my eyes and said she couldn't help me, but was concerned enough about what she saw that she said I needed to go to a specialist. And... The next day, I was in a specialist's office, and over a period of about eight months, though they tried everything, I lost my sight. It was a daily thing, and it was an excruciating process because they couldn't tell me why I went blind. They couldn't tell me how I got the disease, which was atypical central serious choroid retinopathy, uh, a disease where your autoimmune system attacks the macula in your eye and, and literally kills it. So it was a it was a it was a hard time in my life. Uh, you just pretty much saw your world closing in on you, and you lose privileges like driving, and you you lose the ability to be independent. And I desperately wanted to have that back. Now, Trevor, you were telling me before the show that you were never really a hiker. You did some other things like backcountry skiing, and you drove cars. Definitely some things had to change when you first lost your vision. Was there one thing in particular that you didn't expect uh, to lose that was kind of a surprise for you? I think the hardest thing for me was was having to voluntarily quit driving. Don't really realize how much convenience that provides you in life uh, until you can't do it any longer. When it gets down to having to walk every place where you need to go, um, that, that was quite a change for me because I also had to learn how to be mobile again because without sight, I was also not able to leave my house without training. That was very, very limiting for me. So it gets worse and worse, and did you eventually lose? Are you 100% blind now? I know there are certain levels of blindness. Yes, there are very many levels of blindness. Mm -hmm. I am able to perceive light, uh, so in the daytime, I can tell you if it's, if it's sunny outside because everything is gray, and as there is less and less light, everything just turns to black, but I do not have any visual acuity, so I don't see shadows, I don't see, you know, I don't see anything other than a different color of gray and black. Mm -hmm. So Trevor, because we have so much to cover in this interview, I'm just going to give the Meister fans a little bit of a background. So Trevor does reach this low point in life, I mean, for good reason, but he realizes there is something to be made of this. So he gets one of his instructors to take him around the Greenway in Charlotte, which is basically like this series of bike trails and walking trails, but it basically kept him off the road. Now, Trevor shortly realized that his walking cane was no good for those trails and he needed something a little bit more heavy duty. So he went to a store nearby to get some trekking poles and ran into a very enthusiastic kid who could not stop talking about this adventure that he had been on. And it happens to be that he through hiked the Appalachian Trail. At that point, Trevor, you said, 
I need to do that. That's how I get my life back. But it doesn't happen that easily. I'm sure there's a lot of preparation that goes into it. So I guess, first of all, the Appalachian Trail is probably a little bit more rugged than the Greenway Trail you were dealing with, right? What are, what are the Greenway Trails like, and how did you transition to something like the Appalachian Trail? They're groomed very much single-track trails. Mm-hmm. Um, very, very flat. Hard to find, you know, anything mountainous in Charlotte. Um so luckily, the same kid that sold me the poles and gave me this crazy idea to start long-distance hiking decided it would be a good idea to help me. So he, he read me his journal from the AAT um, so I could learn, learn about the trail and learn how to memorize you know, what, what was out there. Uh, he also took it upon himself to find gear that is blind-friendly, which is harder than it sounds. They don't make gear for blind people. Give me some examples of the blind-friendly gear that you need to find. Uh, let's see. Okay, I can, I can start with anything. Probably one of the scariest was stoves. There are a multitude of stoves out there. Most of them I can't use for one reason or another. An alcohol stove, I can't hear it. If I manage to spill some of it, I can burn the forest down. Uh, I can catch myself on fire, which isn't very much fun. Um, <laughs> the multi-fuel stoves... It's hard for me to properly prime the pan so I can turn that into a bomb very easily. Uh, So I have to use uh, the canister stoves because when they're lit, I can hear the distinct sound that, yes, it has lit. When it comes down to those, uh, most of them have three prongs that hold your pot on. That's not really safe when you can't see exactly where the pot is and you can knock it over easily. So I had to find one that had four prongs to make it more stable. Pretty much what I do is I take a piece of gear that's, that's already available off the shelf and I either have to modify it or I have to search through every backpack to find one that I can simply use or teach myself how to use. Wow. This is stuff that I, like you just never think about. I would never think about this. When I was thinking about that, I, I thought of your tent, and I'm trying to figure out how I would put a tent together with my eyes shut, basically. You had to use a tent, right? Yeah, um, well, tents are another thing that limit me. Uh, I can't use a hammock because it's too hard to find the trees to hook it up to. Um, A tarp tent is a literal disaster for me because it's too hard for me to set up. So I had to search through every tent manufacturer to to find a tent which I could actually not only put up, like you said, put it up with your eyes closed, but once you've mastered that, then I had to be able to put it up in foul weather, mm. which is a totally different animal. Simplicity, ease of use, and the companies that logically made a piece of gear were the only things that I could gravitate to. Wow. I mean, 2,100 miles is just really hard for me to comprehend. How many miles are you doing a day? And, and how do you even – so you start on the trail – How do you know where you're going? I mean, you can't memorize the whole trail. No, I learned that very quickly. You can't memorize the whole trail, um, which was my plan one. I really, after the first couple of days, wondered what I'd gotten myself into. But I knew once I put my boots on the trail, there was no way I was going to stop. Trevor, we're talking about 2,000 miles. How do you get yourself to keep going? 
I just, you know, I just took it day by day. I knew that, you know, any day on trail could end up being my last. And that's the way I approached it. I had convinced myself that if I could, if I could complete this, then I would, I'd get my life back. So failure for me was not an option. Uh, I had literally nothing to go back to. So that's, that's what kept me going. What did you run into besides terrain on the trail that you didn't expect? Navigation. Navigation for me is vastly different than probably for anybody, anybody else out there. Obviously, there are no maps for somebody like me. There are no guidebooks for somebody like me. Uh, so I had to be creative in how I was able to navigate. So what I rely on is pretty much map. I'm very good at estimating my cadence. So for me, cadence and time equals distance. And then since my phone will talk to me, I have a wonderful trail angel named Lane who methodically takes every guidebook and data book and compacts it into emails, sends it to my phone so I can refer back to my phone and it will read me the data that most people can just pull out of a, pull out of a map. Say, you know, say for instance, I know there's something I need at 2.6 miles. I will keep track of my cadence and my time. And when I get to about two miles, I really have to start intently listening for what it is that I need, whether it be water, whether it be a possible structure, maybe I'm crossing a road and that would be a hard marker for me. So I know at one small point in time, I know where I am. And then I rely on the feeling in my feet to make sure that I haven't wandered off trail. Uh, so all trails feel different and you get, you know, after many, many miles, you get a feeling for the trail that you're on. So that's how I, you know, that's how I keep track of when I'm on trail. And then I'm, you know, I don't have the ability to make a decision and make it incorrect. So on the AT, my plan was if I got to a place where I just didn't know which way to go, maybe the trail intersected and I didn't know whether to go left or right. Uh, maybe there wasn't a sign there that I could trace with my fingers and, and follow that. My plan was since the AT was so well-traveled, I would just sit on the side of the trail and I'd wait. And I'd wait for somebody to come by, explain to them, you know, my, you know, my situation, wait for the shock to wear off and then say, I need to know which way to go. Uh, so that's, that's what I did. Wow. Oh my gosh. And so you talked about your cadence and you're probably not walking in a straight line most of the time. So is that why you said when you're going for looking for something, maybe 2.6 miles away, you have to really start being intent at two miles because there's such a margin for error there. There's a margin for error. Yes. And your cadence is naturally going to change. Uh, maybe you're going over some, some rolling terrain, you know, you're going up, you're going up 200 feet and then you go down 200 feet. Typically, most people will go a little bit slower on an uphill climb than on the downhill. So I, you know, I put the, I put that in for a margin of error because I can't afford to overshoot what it is that I'm looking for. Are you falling on the trail? <laughs> um, I like to say that every hiker falls. I just take it to a new level of extremes. Uh, I don't much now than, that I, than I used to. Um, when I was on the AT, I quit counting after 3,000 
and then just started concentrating on things that were that were really bad, like broken bones and things. Oh my um, gosh, three thousand? Are you kidding me? <laughs> what kind of bones did you break? Uh, let's see, I broke two bones in my left foot, and then I cracked my iliac crest on the left hand side. Broke four ribs, cracked my skull open, and dislocated my right shoulder. Well, and do you, do you need medical treatment for these kinds of things? I mean, like a cracked skull, you probably need to bandage that up, right? Yeah, um, I learned a lot of backcountry medicine, and I also, I think, you know, there are so many books written on the AT, but there's never been a book written on the best and worst medical care that you can get. I think I should be the one to write that because I've visited nearly every medical treatment facility on the AC. <laughs> I even remember one large animal veterinarian that I had to go to when I broke my ribs when I was in Maine because that was the only thing around. Oh, my gosh. How long did it take you overall to complete the entire trail? I was pretty psyched. I started off, I started off slow, um, but... The average hiker will complete the AT anywhere from five to seven months. And I finished in six months and two days. So I speed, you know, as, as I went along because you meet friends and I did not want, not only did I, I have to finish the trail for me, but I also, you know, I also didn't want to be the weak link, the weak link in a hiking team. You know, if I have found some friends to hike with for a few days, I, you know, didn't want them to have to worry about the blind guy or slow down their progress. So I learned very quickly how to, you know, how to hike faster or longer just so I could stay with friends if I could find any. You probably got so much better as time went on. Did your mileage per day increase? Yeah, pretty much. I think at the beginning I started off and I was doing maybe eight miles a day. And then towards, towards the end, um, obviously I was fighting the clock to get done with the trail before they closed Katahdin on me. By the end of the trail, I was, you know, I was doing high teens and twenties. Wow. So, you know, that was doubling my original speed, which was kind of cool. And did you ever run into anybody on the trail who didn't know you were blind at first? Maybe they were passing you or started to talk to you? Well, yeah, that was. That was actually kind of fun for me. It happened. It happened more than once. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, I'm kind of a freak of nature. So when you're out on the trail, uh, there's you know word of mouth travels fast. Uh, so people, when I would get to a town, people would already know that hey, there's this blind guy hiking and he's coming this way. So people that I would run into. Um, maybe coming southbound on the trail. I remember one guy when I was in Pennsylvania, he stopped me and he said, you know, I'm going south. And he said, I heard there's this blind guy out on the trail. Have you seen him? (laughs) I was like, well, no, I haven't seen the blind guy in a while, which technically I wasn't lying to him because I haven't seen myself in a mirror for about nine years. So I went into town and he was from that town and ran into him again. And he's like, are you zero? And I said, yes, I am. And he said, I asked you if you saw the blind guy. And I said, well, I didn't lie to you. I haven't seen the blind guy because I haven't seen me in a while. But yes, it's me. <laughs> That's great. That was probably my best, my, you know, one of my best ones and, and the greatest feeling that I get when I just get to be normal. People don't, they don't see you as a blind person. They just, 
see me as another hiker. When you do go back to, in quotes, the real world after these extraordinarily long hikes, is there culture shock involved? Do you, what's, the, what's the emotion there? Um, it's, it's, really, it's really tough for anybody to get back into society, I think, after being on a long trek. I mean, when you're living in the life in the slow lane and, and living in the wilderness for, you know, three, four, five, six months, coming back to society that moves so quickly is very hard. But for me, I was, it was exceptionally, you know, exceptionally hard because every time I go out, I, you know, you get this sense of empowerment. I've, I've just done what has never been done before. I've done what no other blind person has managed to accomplish. And it's, it's such an amazing feeling. And then when I come back to society, it's, it's very humbling because I go back to a world where I need help for the most mundane things that most people, once again, take for granted. Um, I, I, can't go, I can't go to a grocery store by myself uh, with a, and want to shop. Uh, I need assistance. I can't read the packages, uh, even though I memorize the aisles and know which aisles things are in. If I want to get something at the store... I need somebody to go with me to make sure I'm getting the right thing or get somebody at the store to help me. And then there's the whole thing of you shop for all your groceries for the week. How do I get them home? I have to carry them all. So I have to make the decision, you know, is it worth it to go out in the rain to go get something um, or do I rely on somebody else? So it, it kind of brings you back to earth. Wow. Well, now you have a dog. You didn't have her when you did the Appalachian Trail, right? When did you get to Neil? I got to Neil, um, let's see, this October will be two years ago. And you guys are buds, right? Um, in two years, we have been together 24-7, 365 in every environment except for one four-hour stint. Wow. So you're spending every moment with her. How, how has that changed the way you go about everyday life? It, it's opened up a lot of possibilities for me, both in town and for my hiking career. Um, in town, I, I'm accepted more as a person and blindness is more of a positive thing when I meet people because they want to know about the dog. Hmm. I always hated my cane, uh, because it kind of made me stick out like a sore thumb and a lot of people would be standoffish because they didn't really know what to do with you. Um, so that changed. But when I got to Neil, uh, number one, they've never trained a dog to work in the city and then actually work for a blind person in the backcountry because the skills are diametrically opposed. So she is, she's one of a kind in the service dog world. But what she's done for me is she's opened up a whole avenue of being able to hike the more remote, the more less traveled trails that I never would be able to attempt by myself um, because she can fill in, she can fill in the pictures that that I need to have filled in for me when there is no other human being around. She knows how to find cairns. She finds signs for me. Um, since she's a lab, obviously, I don't have any worries about finding a good water source anymore because labs love water. She also would do things like I told you earlier, I cracked my skull when I was on the AT. I don't do that anymore because she knows how tall I am and she not only will find obstructions such as rocks, 
uh, routes that she deems are going to cause harm to me and will alert me to them. She also watches for branches that are hanging at head level. So she'll warn me of those so I don't um, smack myself in the head as much anymore. Wow. How does she, how does she warn you for the overhanging branches? Does she bark? No. Um, I've only heard her bark about twice in her entire life. It's all um, nonverbal communication. Um, we've developed our own way of communicating with one another, but save for a boulder that she needs me to know about, she will stop, put her, you know, put both front paws on it, and basically say, "Hey, here this is. Beware." Um, if it's something that's that's hanging, uh, going to hit me in the head, she will stop before we get to it, and then it's up to me to figure out whether it's going to be. Say, um, say a tree that's going to be at shin level that could trip me or something that's going to be at head level. But we've been hiking long enough now that I can feel the subtle differences in her demeanor to know that she is telling me about something on the ground versus something in the, in the, you know, that's, that's in the air. That is fascinating. Are there times when you support Tennille? Um, Yeah. Every time we've gone out, we just got done with our third through hike together. Um, every time we've gone out, it's been in different environments, so we have to learn new skills together. This last trail, which was the long trail that we just completed, there were sections that there were ladders that were drilled into the rock faces that you literally had to climb down. So her job was to tell me the ladders were there. Then it was my job to figure out how to get us down the 20 foot cliff to get to, you know, to get off the mountain. So we, we had to be creative. Um, I used her harness and, um, some webbing and I affixed her to my chest and would climb down ladders with her. I learned that, uh, she is a very good friction climber. So I would, um, I had to do the one thing that you never do with a guide dog. So she could friction climb without pulling me off the face and me vice versa pulling her off. Usually they say if you let a guide dog off a leash, the first thing they're going to do is run away. I found out that she will not run away. She will never leave me because she would just climb her her section, wait for me, and then climb again. But probably the most amazing thing that she's done for me thus far is that there were several sections that lasted for days on the mountains, just on the, uh, the long trail that there weren't enough markers in a day for me to know where I was. So I didn't know exactly where to turn when the trails would intersect and there were no other people around. So I relied on her. She actually navigated for me and I don't ask me how she does it. I don't know. She's colorblind, so she doesn't see the blazes. Uh, she might have been following hikers that we had met that were that passed us, or she's just, I mean, her trail name should be Garmin, but <laughs> she literally can navigate a trail. She's, she's amazing. Talk about a man's best friend, huh? Yes. Oh, my gosh. There, there, have you ever been approached to do a movie about this? I've... I've done a few. I've done a few documentaries. I've got a lot of people that are that are screaming at me to finish my book, and I have talked, you know, tentatively to some folks about possibly doing a movie. Un- unbelievable! It gives me chills to hear this. I'm sure you get that a lot, but it is an unbelievable story. I also heard that you do some what's called echolocation. 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 And yeah. what exactly is echolocation? 
Uh, the closest way I can explain it to you is that I'm kind of like a human bat. I'm not the best blind person that does it. I know a lot of people that are that are far more skilled at it than I. I consider myself a generalist. But what I do to help identify my environment is I take ambient sounds from nature and everything creates a you know creates a sound wave and a sound return. Um, I listen to that and it gives me a very basic rudimentary picture. Not like a picture, like a photograph, but it gives me an idea of my environment. Say I'm, I'm, I'm in an open, an open field, maybe on top of a bulb, things like that. Um, I can also tell the surfaces that I'm on, because rocks give back a different sound to me hmm. for identification purposes than, say, trees do. Um, I, I'm not as good at it when I'm in town, but if I walk into a room, say I'm giving a speech, I walk into an auditorium, I can gauge how large the auditorium is, how you know how full it is with people, um, you know maybe it's maybe the floors are concrete versus carpeted. I can do things like that. So I've heard before that when somebody loses one sense, their other ones are heightened. They they aren't heightened. You don't get superpower senses for your other ones. You simply since your one is taken away, you pay attention to the other ones that much more. Mm-hmm. Um, my hearing didn't physically get any better, but I definitely hear things that I never paid attention to before now. And there are there have been some studies done that that uh, for blind people, your hearing does possibly get better because the audio cortex takes over the visual cortex. It's something about rewiring your brain. One thing that we like to ask our guests, Trevor, is for a gear recommendation. And I'm sure people are wondering what the good gear is because you've done the Pacific Crest, the Appalachian Trail, the Long Trail, and many others. So do you have a piece of gear that you would recommend for our listeners? Oh, a single piece of a gear? A single piece of gear, if you had to narrow it down to one. That is that is a rough question. I'm <laughs> going to get off easy and say, the best gear in the world, look at my website on my sponsor page. Those companies make it. But I think probably the single most important piece of gear that I have are my trekking poles. They literally, they, they give me basically four points of contact so I fall less. They also help me identify things in my environment just because I can tap on things and I can hear what it is that, it, that, uh, that is around. But those are probably the, the one thing that really enabled me to start doing this. If you're going to buy them, buy Leaky. They make the best poles on the planet. We will throw that on your Meister profile page on our website uh, so the listeners can check out those. Another question, and maybe this is my lack of creativity, how I came up with this, but are there any questions that you would expect people to ask you, uh, but people for some reason don't, like something that people don't realize but you would think is really important? Yeah, I think think the the one thing that people don't realize with me and with with other blind people is they will always ask me the question well when you're on trail what is the hardest thing for you you know is it crossing a stream is it climbing a rock face you know is it you know is it living you know you know being on a glacier or anything like that and i think they're always really surprised at my answers 
because it's not it's not navigating across a glacier it's not climbing a rock face it's not you know making sure my footing is good in a stream so i don't fall and drown the toughest thing for me is when i'm solo and i have to go into a trail town and i have to find the post office without anybody to help me and then or god forbid i have to go to the grocery store without anybody to help me find the items that i need to resupply and then move on. That is that is something once again like going back to society. That's where that's where it, it all comes full circle and I go from being the master of my environment in the backcountry to needing help with the most mundane of mundane things. Going forward, what's next for you and are you going to continue doing these long trails or is there something else in the pipeline, maybe even a, a different sport? I'm always willing to try a different sport. I've, I've grown fond of kayaking recently. I think I will continue to do the long trails because I just love, I love hiking. It's, it's such a, such a freeing experience for me. But right now I'm, I'm at a point where I think it's time to be able to give back. And I'm really excited about a blind ambassador program that I'm working on with the Perkins School for the Blind and the Boy Scouts Troop 3 out of Manchester, Massachusetts. And what I've done is I'm, I've partnered with them to get the Boy Scouts educated about blindness in the United States, and I've partnered them with blind kids from the Perkins School, and we have developed a way, which is the way that I hike. We're teaching the kids from Perkins how to take control of their lives. And we're getting them out in the backcountry so they can go hiking and they can, they can take away the sense of empowerment that, that only the backcountry can do for them and hopefully apply it to everyday life. Congratulations on everything that you've accomplished. This has been an awesome conversation. For our listeners, again, more information about Trevor at blindhikertrevorthomas.com. Also highlights of today's episode on our website, mtnmeister.com. Trevor, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. It was great. Hey, Meister fans, thanks for tuning in to that throwback episode, number 68, with Trevor Thomas, the blind hiker. Don't forget to send me your weird twists on Thanksgiving classics. Just to give you another example, I'm looking at a Thanksgiving turkey cake right now, which looks like a carrot cake. However, instead of that cream cheese icing, it looks to be mashed potatoes that replace that icing. And then a nice sweet potato puree on top, maybe some toasted marshmallows on top of that. And then the layers that look to be carrot cake, I believe, are stuffing. And just based on the ingredients, it looks like there are some oats and ketchup and Worcestershire sauce. This looks really weird. Almost too weird. But hey, be creative. We want weird twists on Thanksgiving classics. Send those in and enjoy the wonderful holiday with family and friends. That's most important. Until next time, I am the host of Mountain Meister, Ben Shank. And thank you for listening. <laughs>